in just a minute, I'm, I'm going to show you a video. And so what we're going to do in the next couple of weeks is this. We're looking at the theme of Christ's mess. Obviously, it's a play on Christmas, Christ's mess. That in the midst of the storms of life, in the midst of the difficulties and challenges of life, Jesus is right there. He's right there in the midst of all of that. And so what we're going to do today and the following Sundays is this. We have a couple of videos. We have two people that we videotape, Peggy Booker and Andy Faulkner. And over the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear bits and pieces of their stories about how God worked in the midst of the difficulties and the challenges of life. So that's what we're going to do. I, I love stories. There's something about a person telling another person, this is what Jesus has done in my life. This is how my life has radically been transformed from here to here. And look at all of the messes and look at all this stuff going on. In the midst of that, Jesus was there. And that's kind of where we're going to go. That's our theme for Christmas, Christmas. Jesus is right there in the mess. So, having said that, let me introduce to you the first video that we're going to see this morning from my friend Peggy Booker. I have known Peggy Booker for over 30 years. We have worked together in a variety of ways. And she is one of my close friends. And uh, I know her story in and out. And we want to give you just a snapshot of her story this morning. My story goes back to Christmas of 1985. I went from celebrating a Christmas with the five of us to where I was home alone. My name is Peggy Booker. I first came to Hope Church in 1981. After 12 and a half years of marriage, my husband left. It was the day before Valentine's Day. And to be honest with you, when he left, he'd been working a lot, worked hard, and I thought he just needed a little sabbatical, a break, and he went to stay at his parents' house for a while. Life never was quite the same. Um, my husband had left me in February. We had three children. And all of the Christmases before that, we go over to my in-laws on Christmas Eve, spend Christmas Eve with them. Grandma made it very special. We always um, had good food, good time together. The kids absolutely loved it. And then we would be home on Christmas morning and have our family Christmas. And then on Christmas afternoon, we go to my parents. And once again, a good afternoon of good food, family. We just had a good um, experience. So my story changed at Christmas of 1985. I had Christmas coming and I didn't want the kids to miss out on their Christmas Eve at grandma's. Um, so I took them over to Grandma's house on Christmas Eve. We were all excited that they were going to get to go, and everything um, looked good from my side, but it wasn't. Um, I dropped them off. I left the house and realized that from one year, I went from celebrating a Christmas with the five of us to where I was home alone. Life can change in a year, can it? Things can be really good one year. In the next month or so, your life can be radically, radically changed. What we know about the Christian faith is this. We'd like it to be a straight line. We'd love it to be from point A to point B, but it's never that way. Uh, a lot of times the waters are very, very rough. Sometimes the hills are really, really steep, and we've got to walk on it. And it's very, very difficult at, time and, at times. And, and, and what I want to do this morning um, and the next couple of weeks is look at this idea of, of who Jesus is in the midst of the mess of life. You know, sometimes we have families that are a little bit messy. 
Sometimes our plans are a little bit messy. You're going to see that from Peggy a little bit later. Sometimes our priorities are a little bit messy. It's really easy for all of those things to get messed up. We live in a messed up world right now. Don't we live in a messed up world? You look around at what's going on in the Middle East. You look around what's going on in our culture. Look at the, the world that my grandchildren are growing up in, and I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm concerned for them, I'm concerned for all of us. So what I want to do is I introduce this series this morning. I want to take you to a really, really difficult passage. It's a genealogy. Can you believe that? Some of you are going, what in the world is he going to do with the genealogy? I have no idea what I'm going to do with the genealogy. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. And what I want us to see is this, that this is a genealogy. And, and I realize that there's a lot of places that we turn to in the Bible for comfort. When you want comfort, you want to read, oh, I want to read Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Maybe in the time of death, John 14, we want to read all of those wonderful comforting passages, Psalm 37. And this is not one of those comforting passages, it's a genealogy. But it's in the Word of God, and it begins the New Testament. And there's a reason why we have this genealogy to begin the New Testament. And I, I, I actually was going to not read this genealogy, but I'm like, listen, if I'm going to make a big stink out of how important it is, I probably, ought to, I probably ought to read it. And I'm grateful to Luke for reading it this morning. So I'm going to read it. I'm probably going to goof up a couple of names, but we're going to walk through this. And hopefully somehow, some way, the Spirit of God, not me, but the Spirit of God will speak to you in such a way that this genealogy is going to be relevant to our lives. So hear the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is the genealogy of the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashan, Nashan the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Verse 7, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Verse 12, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abahud, Abahud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Methan, Methan, the father of Jacob. Verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, or in some verses, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to the Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is God's word, and thus begins the New Testament. Father, I thank you for your word. 
Father, there's a lot of places in these 66 books that are difficult for us to, to understand at times. And Father, there's a reason and a purpose that you began the New Testament with this genealogy of Jesus. And Father, I pray that through the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, you can open up our minds and our hearts to what we might learn about who you are, about how you are the God of history, the people who are involved in the God of history, and also what it means to us with Jesus, our King and our Messiah. So Father, open our eyes and our ears to the Word of God. May we find peace and comfort because of who you are, and it's in Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said. So I would imagine some of you are sitting there and you're going, okay, are we really going to look at a genealogy? Yeah, we're going to look at a genealogy. We're going to look at some, some names that we don't even know how to pronounce. We don't know the context. We don't know when they lived. They lived thousands of years ago. And I imagine for some of you older like me, you would think, oh, this is like, this is like reading the phone book, you know, one name after another name after another name. You know, for, for some of you in this newer generation, it would be like opening your, your phone and reading your contact list. That's, it's about how fun it would be. It's how boring it would be. But, but I really believe that there's some things that we can learn here because this is, this is the family line of Jesus. This is the family line of Emmanuel, God with us. And from the very, very beginning, God had a, a meaning and a purpose for all of those lives. All of those people that's gone before us. There's a thread that weaves the entire story together. And what we have the great privilege to do is to look at this and see what the Messiah was all about. <clears throat> and what I want us to see kind of on the outside of this, when you look at these names, if you're familiar with the names, if you look at some of these names, you're like scratching your head going, what? That, that's a bad dude right there. That, that guy, David, wasn't he a adulterer? Wasn't he a murderer? But what about some of these other people? What about Judah? Judah's a really, what's he doing in the genealogy of Jesus? And we have this idea of, of this is Jesus' family line. It really looks messy to me if you know anything about the people involved in it. And so what I want to do is I simply want to walk through the messiness of Jesus' life, the messiness of Jesus' family. Maybe you come from a messy family. Maybe you've got some messy things going on in your life. Maybe, maybe what we can do is we can learn in the genealogy here about Emmanuel, God with us, and how he would reveal himself to us this morning. So what can we learn from the genealogy? Number one is this. The genealogy, even verse one, it summarizes the gospel story. It summarizes the Bible, if you will. Look at verse one again. It says this, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The first 16 words in our NIV Bible, and it would be eight in the Greek Bible, basically it summarizes the entire Bible up to this point. And so what Matthew does is Matthew says, listen, what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize the entire Old Testament, and I'm going to summarize the entire Old Testament in one verse. Look to Adam, look to Abraham, look to David, and look to Jesus. And now we know that Adam's name is not mentioned there, not explicitly in the story, but notice how it begins. It says this, a record of the genealogy, or it could be this, the book of Genesis. In other words, this is the book of beginnings. This is the book of the origin. This is the beginning of how things came to be. And that same idea, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, is found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the family line of Adam. And it's going to weave all the way through. So in the beginning, God is moving. God is working. From the very beginning, God is moving. And so what we see here is this. From the very, very beginning, God is moving in a purposeful way, establishing his people in his place for his purpose so that he would be honored and glorified throughout all of the earth and that one day the Messiah would come. 
And if you look at verse 1, you see names. You see Abraham. And you see David. Abraham. God gave a covenant. Genesis chapter 12. God gave a covenant to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Why? Because Abraham was a man of faith. He believed in God. He trusted in God. All the nations would be blessed through him through faith. David was given a promise. King David was given a promise in 2 Samuel that one day a descendant from his line, from his throne, from his line would come and he's going to rule and he's going to reign and it's going to be an eternal reign. And that's what is being stated here about the Messiah, if you will. And so what Matthew was doing, he's summarizing the entire Bible story, if you will, in one verse. Adam, Abraham, David, and the Messiah, Jesus. It would be like this. I think it would be like this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the line to a song. And some of you younger people, you're not going to get it. I realize that. But for us older people, I, I just want to give you one line. Because I think it demonstrates what Matthew's doing here. Here's the song. Here's the line. I may have to sing it to keep it on cadence. But do not laugh. Okay. Here it goes. Has anybody here seen my old friend Bobby? Can you tell me where he's gone? I thought I saw him walking over the hill with Abraham, Martin, and John. Most of us remember that song. And then that one line, we know that he's talking about Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King and, and John Kennedy and, and Bobby Kennedy. What the songwriter did is he took a song and he encapsulated their lives and their legacies and what they lived for and, and wrote it down in one line. And so we get that when we hear music. And that's the same thing happening here. What, what Matthew was doing, says, listen, I, I want to give you the summary of, of the line of the Messiah. It comes through Abraham and all the promises. And it comes through David and all the promises. And all of those, those two covenants, the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant, are really, really important when we come to the understanding of Jesus the Messiah. Second thing that we learn is this. It's about connections. This genealogy is about Connections. It's about connecting the dots. Can we connect the dots from one name to another? Can we make the connection between Abraham and David? Can we make all of those connections together? Let, let me ask you something. Have you ever tried to look up your ancestry? Has anybody ever done that? Some people have. Ancestry.com. You get on and you look up your ancestry. You, know, you kind of want to find out where your roots are, where you came from. Not too long ago, a couple of years ago, I, I was given a flag, a folded up flag in a case uh, from my dad. And the significance of the flag is this, that um, I'm named after a gentleman by the name of Clinton. And uh, he served in the military. And uh, he also um, was in a boat in Long Beach. And one of his children uh, fell overboard. And two of them died, and he jumped in to try and save them. And, and I have this flag. I have the, the paper report, and I have his dog tags about this gentleman that I am, that I am named for. And it sets my life a little bit in the context of a broader picture of my life and who I am and, and what's going on. And I, I think that's what you and I at times want. We want our lives to connect with our history, with our past. And that's why I think a lot of people are getting involved at this Ancestry.com and, and looking back into the roots. And, and where did I come from? Maybe especially if some of you were adopted. So as I looked into this, I, I found a guy by the name of, and I can't say his name, I'm going to butcher his name, it's really hard, it's... Uh, Evitar Zerubbabel, that's all I'm going to say. But he wrote a book called Ancestors and Relatives. And in his book, what he does, he explores the significance and the importance of our ancestry, where we came from. This book was written in 2011. 
And in promoting the book, he was asked a couple of questions. And I want to just walk through this because it's very interesting in the 21st century how this becomes relevant to the genealogy. Question number one he was asked. Your new book opens with a passage from the Hebrew Bible that traces several generations of ancestors, starting with Atai begot Nathan. How is that connected to the themes you are writing about? Answer. What I see in that passage from Chronicles, which is 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 36, is not just a list of names, but the line connecting them. I love this idea of connectedness. And then he goes on. What jumps out in this example from the ancient Israelites is that it's all men. This clues us in that this genealogy doesn't give a complete chronicle of history, but a very partial story for a specific purpose. Question. That in itself seems to illustrate one of the major points of your book. Genealogies are not passive recordings of ancestral history, but instead are narratives constructed for specific reasons. What are those typical reasons? And this was his answer. I would say identity and legitimacy. The same way you give legitimacy to a golden retriever, by giving it a good pedigree, you do the same thing with human beings. I use the term genealogical capital and that genealogies are used to solidify and enhance social standing. He's going on to say that genealogies were written for a specific purpose, legitimacy and identity. And I believe that's what Matthew is doing here. He is establishing the identity and the legitimacy of Jesus being the absolute Messiah in the line of Abraham, in the line of David. What we have in this passage is more than a list of names. What we have in this passage is a true story. And the, and the story is that, that God is sovereign, that God is provident in all of these things. And no matter which way the story goes, the ebb and flow, the ups and downs, the highs and lows, the rebellion of various people, God is still in control of all that is going on. And what Matthew is doing is drawing on this rich tradition of these genealogies that the Jewish people would take and keep and hold on to that were absolutely important to their lives. He's using this genealogy to provide evidence for the legitimacy of Jesus as what? As the Messiah and as the King. From the very outset of the New Testament, we are being given evidence that Jesus is the Messiah in the line of Abraham, the line of David. And with regard to the legitimacy and the authenticity of who Jesus is, what we observe in this passage is that from the very beginning, from verse 1, we have this idea that Jesus is a king. And what we mentioned till verse 6, when he is announced as the, as the king David, but what we have in this is the idea that Jesus is the king. From the very, very first verse, Messiah, anointed one, it means this idea that, that there's a king coming. The king is coming. He goes on to talk about Abraham. Abraham, in, in the line of Abraham, there was a promise given to, to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him. So Abraham, Jesus fulfills the promise given to Abraham. David, the king. David was given a specific promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that one day a, a, a person from his line, the Messiah from his line would come and he would be the rightful king. And what he would do is he would not only reign, but he would reign forever and ever and ever. And the Jewish people no doubt were looking for and anticipating 
the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me put it on the screen for you. And notice the promise given to David in 2 Samuel. Notice what he writes. This is given to King David through the prophet Nathan. It says this. The Lord declares to you. By the way, this would mean so much to a Jewish person. This would mean so much to a Jewish person. And, and, and uh, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to Jewish people. They would be interested in the genealogy. They would be interested in the line of Abraham. They would be interested in the line of David. Notice what he writes. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you from your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. All of a sudden, David's getting this understanding. Wait a minute, there's going to be a, a different kind of king who's going to come, and his throne is going to be forever and ever and ever. And he continues that in verse 16. Notice what it says. Your house, the person who comes from your line, David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. What God had promised to David was that a descendant would sit on the throne and he would reign forever and ever. And that is what we are going to see fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And what Matthew is doing, he's connecting the dots. He's connecting the dots from Adam to Abraham to King David to down the line where we're going to find the fulfillment ultimately in Joseph and Mary. He's saying, listen, connect the dots to Abraham and to Jesus as the son of David. By the way, in Jesus' lifetime, how many times do we hear people crying out as Jesus walks along, Jesus, son of David? The demons cry out, Jesus, son of David? Blind men cry out, have mercy on me, Jesus, son of David? When Jesus goes into uh, Jerusalem in his triumphant entry, in Mark chapter 7, this is what it says. The people were crying out these words. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, people were saying, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They recognized on some level that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the king, and he was going to rule and he was to reign. The only thing that they didn't get about it is he wasn't coming to establish a kingdom. He was coming to establish his death on the cross for sin. They recognized who he was, but they didn't recognize that he would come and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. And I believe what Matthew's doing, he's giving us the legitimacy of who Jesus is as the son of, uh, as a descendant of uh, Adam, as a descendant of Abraham, as a descendant of David. He's giving us that this is the real deal. This is legitimate Messiah. Do you know what the, the word of the year for the Merriam-Webster uh, uh, Dictionary this year in 2023? Anybody know? Probably nobody knows. It's interesting. It's authentic. Authentic. Isn't that interesting? The word of the year is authentic. It seems to be a term that we're all thinking about, writing about, aspiring to, and judging more than ever. Is there authenticity in what we see in a person's life? Is there authenticity in the media? Is there authenticity in our politics? Is there authenticity in all of this? It seems to me what we are looking at is this idea of authenticity. And evidently this word has been very, very popular for years. But just recently in 2023, people more and more started looking up the definition of what it means to be authentic. And what Matthew is simply doing is this. 
He's establishing the authenticity of Jesus as the Messiah, as the son of Abraham, as the son of David, fulfilling all of those covenants. So how does this relate to us? I think it does. Now, Christmas time, we worship Jesus. But a lot of times we worship the baby Jesus. We like the baby in the manger. It's easy to keep him there because it doesn't really make any demands on our life. We like the baby Jesus. He's cute, he's cuddly. We love babies. Everybody loves babies. But we have to do is, is and we have to remember that, that is, is Jesus is a king. He is the king. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one, anointed one. And he's come to rule and reign, not only in our hearts, but one day to rule in the future. And a lot of times what we do is we sing about Jesus being the king. Think about the carols that we sing, Joy to the World. The first verse goes like this. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her, what? We all know. Joy to the world, why? Because Jesus is the king. It came upon a midnight clear. You may not know this, but I'll give it to you. Verse one, it came upon a midnight clear, that glorious song from old, from angels bending near the earth to touch their hearts of gold. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, from heaven's all-gracious king. That is just a reminder that Jesus, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, is in heaven and he reigns fully, sitting at the right hand of God. And so what we have in here in Matthew chapter 1 is a summary of the line of David, about, of the line of Jesus, about who he is and how he fulfills all of the promise. We have this, this wonderful, beautiful idea that, that we can connect all the dots to all of the people. And when we connect all the dots, it makes sense as we see and follow them. But there's something else in here that's really interesting. It's this. There's a lot of messiness in this. And there's a lot of inclusion of outsiders. A lot of people, we kind of scratch our heads and go, wait, why is that person in there? There's a lot of messiness. It includes people who committed adultery, people who murdered, people who sold their family off and sent them away. So many things that we see and read in this line is, is it's just so, so bizarre and so odd. Uh, the idea that, that in a genealogy you would, you would inc include women is, is kind of odd. There's not a lot of genealogies that include, the, include the, the listing of women. Some of them do, but not all of them. And, but when you read this genealogy here, you look at the names, you're like, well, wait a minute, this is not... This is not Abraham. This is not Sarah. It's not Rebecca. These aren't the, the matriarchs. These are a bunch of people that are included in the genealogy. They have a, a real sordid history, if you will. It's, it's very interesting to, to look at the genealogy and, and talk about Abraham fathered so-and-so. Abraham fathered Isaac with no listing of the mom, Sarah. No listing. But in verses 3, 5, and 6, it's almost as if Matthew is making a point by listing the moms. And what's interesting about the moms is they're almost all outsiders. It's almost as if Matthew was intentionally listing these names. And by the way, don't forget that in the story of the line of Jesus, there's some people in here that we might scratch our heads at. Let's walk through and maybe look at a couple of them. Verse 3, Tamar. You remember Tamar? Do you remember her story? Look at verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. It's almost an embarrassing story to even read about in Genesis chapter 38. I don't even like reading it when you go through the Bible. Judah walks away from his family, and he goes and gets a wife for his children. He marries, has children, and he goes and gets 
a wife for his children. Well, what happens is uh, the oldest son dies, and so the wife is going to go to the second son. That son dies because God took his life, and it's supposed to go to the third son, Shelah. But Judah says, listen, there must be something wrong with her. My kids keep dying, and he holds her back. He's not going to give Shelah to, to Tamar. And Judah's wife finally dies. And he goes off to another area of the, of the country, and he goes off by himself talking about shearing sheep. And Tamar gets this thought in her, in her head. She's going to go up, and she goes outside, outside of the city, and she dresses. She takes off her, her uh, widow's clothes. She takes all of it off. She takes it off, and she dresses like a prostitute. And Judah comes on, sees her daughter-in-law dressed like a prostitute, and he sleeps with her. I mean, how, how horrible is that? I mean, think through all of the ramifications of that. They leave. They go back, and life goes on. A couple of months later, all of a sudden, Tamar's pregnant. Judah finds out that Tamar's pregnant. And you know what he wants to do? He wants to kill her. Bring her out and let's stone her to death. His own daughter-in-law. And she comes forward and she says, uh, I'm pregnant by this guy. Here's his car keys. Here's his wallet. Here's his cell phone. That's who it is. And Judah's shocked because he was the one that slept with her. You see the oddness in this. You see the dysfunction. You see the mess up. This is, you can't even call this a family. But now the, 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 the children of Judah and Tamar, Perez, and, and, and they're in the family line. And I, I think this, these people in here, Judah and Tamar in here, to remind us of people, uh, the powerless. Tamar was powerless. She was exploited. Judah was arrogant. He walked away from God and thought he could, he could handle life on his own. And he didn't. And, and these, these people are in here to remind us that, that God is gracious and that God is merciful, even in the messiness of life. And so when Matthew sat down to write this, the Holy Spirit of God prompted him to write down, I want you to include the name of Tamar. Second name, verse 5, Rahab. Solomon was the fa father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. You, you, you remember the story of Rahab? Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. They were getting ready to go in to take the land, and Rahab was there, and she'd heard about God. She'd heard about what God was going to do. He'd heard about all of her miracles. And what she did, she hid the spies. She hid the spies. When they came back later, she was given safe passage. But what the text says about her is this. She was a prostitute. You know, I think sometimes what we have to do is we have to remember that, that sometimes back in that culture, especially women... It was really, really hard, and it was really, really difficult. And so maybe this is the only way that she had to make money for her family, because she seems to be involved in a family. I'm not making excuses for her. I'm just saying that sometimes maybe it's not like we would think what it would be. And here she is. She's in the family line. Rahab the prostitute. And I think what we know and we understand from this is that maybe one of the reasons that this is here is that, that, is that God is reaching out in ways that we cannot think or imagine, to people who are separated, maybe to people who are, are sinful, and maybe they're not accepted by other people. Maybe they're outsiders that don't really gravitate to the nation of Israel and to the people and the things that they would do. And what's interesting is this, that Rahab is actually, in the New Testament, she's what? She's a woman of faith. She's in Hebrews chapter 11. She's in James chapter 2. Why? Because she believed 
about who God was and what God was going to do. And she radically changed her life. And she became a follower of God. And that's why she's lifted up. And so you have Tamar, you have Rahab, this prostitute. Look at verse 5, Ruth. What was wrong with Ruth? Boaz, the father of Boaz of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Well, what's the problem with Ruth? Ruth was a Moabite. Do you know how the Moabites came about? Genesis chapter 19. Lot, they're out. The city has fallen. Almost everybody else is dead. Lot's children are looking, going, we're not going to have any children. So they get their father drunk, and they sleep with him. And they conceive, and they have children. And that's the line of the Moabites. And this was actually a cursed line. The Moabites were a cursed people. To the tenth generation, they were called a cursed people. And Ruth, Ruth did not have an easy life. Her husband died. Her father-in-law died. Her brother-in-law died. Naomi goes back. She wants to go back to her family. And Ruth says, listen, I, I want to follow you. I want your God to be my God. And that woman, Ruth, is in the family. Go back and read the story of Ruth. And it's a beautiful picture of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, coming after and lavishing her and taking care of her and protecting her. And we have a picture of this wonderful kinsman redeemer taking care of people. And it's a wonderful, beautiful picture of those on the outside being accepted by God and being included in the family land. Verse 6 says, Uriah's wife. Notice what it says. David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Isn't that interesting? The author says, who had been Uriah's wife. We all know this to be Bathsheba. You can read about her in 2 Samuel chapter 11. She's out bathing. David sees her bathing. And he pursues her. And he sins for her. And he calls for her. And he sleeps with her. And she gets pregnant. And because of that sin, maybe the exploitation of Bathsheba, because of that sin, David's life was radically, radically changed. Bathsheba's wife, or husband, would eventually die. The child that they conceived would eventually die. And eventually what's going to happen is David's family line is going to be an absolute mess because of his sin. Bathsheba's life was no doubt difficulty. There's probably a lot of sorrow. She was probably a very unpopular woman. Her son died. She married an unfaithful man. And yet here, what Matthew is telling us is this. She is in the genealogy of Jesus. She's there. And so what we have is we, we have this picture of the, of, of the messiness of, of Jesus' family line. line. And, and we have all of these people. We have adulterers. We, we have murderers. When you go back and look at the kings, you have a good king and you have a bad king. And, and you have a, a good father and you have a bad father. And you have a mix of all of these things. All of these things are all involved in the family line of Jesus. And it's a reminder of this. That because of God's goodness, and because of God's grace, and because he loves us, he is absolutely sovereign in all of our lives. And in the messiness of life, and the messiness in this genealogy, God's ways and God's will will continue to move forward. That even in the midst of this, the mess of Abraham and the mess of David, God's purposes and plans will always prevail. And they will always prevail in a good way. Why is that? Because God is faithful. What I want to do is I want to go back and I want to show one last clip uh, from Peggy. And then I'll come back up and just 
draw this to a close before we leave. Now, I wasn't really home alone, um, but a friend from church, a couple from church, had invited me over. They finally convinced me that I should go over for a little while, and I did. And I wasn't the best company. God bless them for inviting me anyway. But we had a nice time, And but the bottom line was I still had to go home to the empty house. And when I got home, um, there were three Christmas presents on my front porch from Santa. I didn't know who it was from, but somebody had thought enough of my three kids to realize that this was gonna be a hard Christmas. And it just filled my heart to know that somebody cared enough to do that for us. But as I look back on that event, on that time, I was able to see that our church family really were there for me. God was faithful in a lot of little things, um, such as immediate answered prayers. Um, one night I was very lonely and sad and made dinner for the kids and they were not having fun. And I finally just said, go out and play. And I thought, God, I'm just so lonely. And the phone rang and it was a couple from church who said, we were thinking about you, wondered if we could come over and um, maybe you and I could have a little visit. The husband would take the kids over to the park and play with them. And I thought, I mean, I barely got the words out of my mouth. He, so he was faithful in prayers like that. He was faithful in providing a job when I had been a stay-at-home mom and I had to go back to work and finding a job that worked for my schedule as a single mom. He was faithful in support of family and friends. And even um, in money, I was totally dependent on my ex-husband at that time for money and uh, the Lord allowed um, that to work out. We were sufficiently taken care of. I was able to get a job that worked with the kids' school schedule. What I wanted you to see from her story and for her testimony is this, that God is faithful. Even in the midst of all that she was going through, the difficulty and the challenge, the messiness of her life, the messiness of her family, that God was faithful. And what I want you to be reminded of this morning, that yes, Matthew, Matthew summarizes the message of Jesus. He connects all of the dots. He includes all of these wayward people. What I want you to see is that in the midst of the character flaws, in the midst of the dysfunctional families, in the midst of the sexual sin, and in the midst of the out-and-out rebellion against God, that God is absolutely faithful to His promise. God was faithful to His promise to Abraham. God was faithful to His promise to David. And He will be faithful to us. That's why he is called Emmanuel, God with us. That God is with us in the messiness of life. He walks with us in the messiness of life. If we will commit our minds and our hearts to him, if we will turn our hearts to him, he will help us in our time of need. When you look at this genealogy, the genealogy is not about all of these people. The genealogy ultimately is about Jesus, the Messiah, and it's about God and his story and that God is absolutely sovereign and faithful in the midst of the messiness of life. God loves you and God cares for you. And no matter where you would find yourself this morning with your life, your past, your story, God is faithful and he can be trusted. And you can look at your storyline, and maybe there's uphills and downhills, and you can look at your storyline, and even though it's bad, what Christ can do is Christ can 
come alongside of you and work in such a way so that you would be honored and glorified, just like he did in the lives of all of these people here. He can do that because God is Emmanuel, Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in Peggy's life. Well, in 1985, it's a long time ago. But there's no doubt the memories and the scars and the battles and the challenges come back. And Father, as she looks back on her life and we look back with her, Father, we're reminded that you are faithful, that you love us, that you care for us, that you are working in and through our lives in ways that we cannot think or imagine if we will simply look to you and trust you. Father, I don't know if there's someone here this morning who wouldn't know and understand who Jesus is and what he would ask of us. He would simply ask to trust me, to repent of our sin, to turn our minds and our hearts to him and commit our lives to him and to invite him to be the Lord of our lives and to surrender control to him and who he is and what he would do for us. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he makes the ashes beautiful and he redeems our life. Father, thank you that we can sing and celebrate the Messiah and who he is, that he is the, the son of Abraham and he is the son of David. Father, thank you for that. And Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name.